Good morning. Good morning, Vessels. It's good to be with you. Um, as Andy has said, my name's Charlie. I'm the other minister here. <laughs> Miles, I love you. <laughs> so, we are going to read, but we're going to read in a minute. How do you picture Jesus? In your mind's eye, in your imagination, how do you picture Jesus? I think all of us probably, particularly if we've grown up in a church from a very young age, we start perhaps quite naturally by picturing Jesus in our own image. After all, it's, it's all we can do, it's all we know. So particularly when we're young and growing up, we start to imagine uh, Jesus is, is sort of just like us because it's, it's what we know in life. In fact, I'm, I'm slightly embarrassed to tell you that I think I was probably 15 years old before I finally realised that, that Jesus probably didn't have white skin. Uh, the, the pictures in my children's Bible painted this sort of Scandinavian Jesus with blonde hair, blue eyes and pale white skin. But actually, it was when I was 15 that I, I realised Jesus was a Palestinian Jew. So actually, he probably looked more like this. I don't know if you saw the panorama a few years ago, but it was, it was a, a panorama about what did Jesus look like. And they attempted a reconstruction from bone fragments of, of an average Palestinian man from the time. And this is what computer modelling came up with. This isn't what Jesus looked like, but it's an average man of that time. So he looked more like that than he did your typical Scandinavian. In fact, if, if you've gone back, if you've, if you've made Jesus, a good clue that you've made Jesus in your own image is if you find out that he supports all the same causes as you and hates all the same people as you. Actually, if, if that's how you find Jesus looks, you're probably pretty sure you've made him in your own image. So one place we get... Uh, perhaps the first image of what Jesus is like is from ourselves. Another image is, is the image that the church presents us. Uh, this is the church that I grew up in, uh, Charlton King's Baptist Chapel on the outskirts of Cheltenham. I'm very grateful to this church. But uh, when I was, I was there from a, from, a, from a tiny baby and one of my earliest memories of the church around seven or eight years old is just before the service, the minister and the deacons would process in and the minister would wear this black cape over his black suit. And behind him would be the church secretary carrying the black church minute book. And then the deacons also similarly wearing black suits and they'd file in and sit along the front row. And the secretary would open the minute book and read the minutes from previous church meetings and notices for the week, close the book, and the minister would stand to start the service. As a kid, the message I got was... Whatever else it is, this religion stuff is terribly serious. And Jesus probably, if he's in this image, likes wearing black, doesn't laugh a lot, probably doesn't party very much, and certainly never drank alcohol. Now, fortunately, that the church changed over the coming years with Charismatic Renewal and Mission England, and actually it became a thriving place by the time I left as a teenager. But as a young boy, I was terribly serious. And I think part of it was growing up in that particular church environment and thinking this is what pleased my parents and this is how I should be terribly serious. And, Jesus, and the church presents an image of what Jesus is like. So perhaps that's the second place we get an image of what Jesus is. 
Also, obviously, there are images from art. Uh, Jesus is the most painted figure in all of history. So there are more paintings of Jesus than anybody else. So art presents us with all sorts of images. In just two minutes, to the person next to you, which of these images best represents the Jesus you have in your mind? Go. Okay. So I guess if you grew up in a certain era, that will forever be the image of Jesus, if you grew up watching the Jesus of Nazareth films. But perhaps the others all speak to, I mean, no one image will convey the entire truth. So perhaps there is something about looking at the whole kind of artistic world's interpretation of Jesus that presents this figure, because Jesus was not one single thing, none of us are, and they try to paint and present different aspects of his character. But I wonder which one spoke to you. Obviously, another place we get images, perhaps the main place we get images of Jesus, is the Bible. The Bible uses words to paint pictures and tell stories of Jesus' life. But like any book we read, we use our imagination to fill in the gaps. You do. You, you know what it's like when you've, uh, when you've read a book and you go to see the film? And you go, that's not what it was like. It's because, well, one thing the directors had to take a, a, a novel that it took you six hours to read and condense it down to a two-hour film, so they had to cut some stuff, but also your imagination filled in the blanks. And we do that when we read the Bible. And I think sometimes we suffer with a poverty of creative imagination when we come to read the Bible. We suffer with a, create, uh, a poverty of creative Imagination. It's with that in mind that we turn to today's Bible reading, which is from John chapter 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realise where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. I guess a familiar story to most of us who've grown up in a church, the story of the the first of the miracles in John's gospel, water into wine. Has anyone been to a Middle Eastern wedding? Anyone here been to a Jewish wedding in particular? Well, they are quite raucous affairs. In fact, probably, have you seen the film My Big Fat Greek Wedding? 
that's getting somewhere near it. I mean, a, a Jewish wedding, particularly in Jesus' day, would go on for probably at least 24 hours, and in some cases, if the family were wealthy, three days. And lots of people were invited, the village, the community, everyone got stuck into this great celebration. In fact, the community loved to get together for a party, and funerals were, were very much like weddings, just with one less person. So, um, so, yeah, I mean, they liked to party, and, and, and they didn't so much splash out on a wedding as pull together, because everyone would bring food, and it goes onto a table, and they share and celebrate, and friends and members of the community would bring instruments, and they'd play together, and they'd dance late into the night. And the host would provide the wine, the wine for everyone to drink. Jesus was at a familiar setting, celebrating with his mother, with his family, and with his disciples. But the wine has run out, which was a source of shame and humiliation to the host because he would have been expected to have provided enough wine for the celebration for the whole time. Um, why did the wine run out? Well, we're not told. Maybe, maybe there, were, there were too many gate crashes too many of the extended community turned out more than they'd expected. Maybe the guests that were invited had just got stuck in too hard and had way too much to drink. Um, maybe the host had been able to, unable to afford the wine that he needed. Any one of those are possibilities, but the wine has run dry. And it's Jesus' uh, mother, Mary, who knows what to do. Incredible faith of Mary at this stage, because she says, yeah, go speak to Jesus and, and tell him what to do in the expectation that he will sort it out for her. So Jesus says, bring the, the six ceremonial jars, fill them to the brim with water. Now draw out some water and the, the master of the banquet tastes it and it's, it's fine wine. This is not the ordinary stuff. This is the very, very best. Jesus has saved the day, saved the host from humiliation and the party can now continue on. But how much wine did Jesus create. Well, we're told it was, what was it, 20 to 30 gallons in each of those five. Um, Josh and Susie will be planning their wedding um, and organising wine for the guests. And if you go to a wine merchant and you ask, roughly how much wine do I need per head for a meal? They'll tell you roughly a third of a bottle. Apparently that's about normal. I know all of you are thinking, at least a half. But no, if you go to a wine merchant, I imagine some won't drink. They reckon a third of a bottle per head. So let's do some maths. If the, if the, the, the jars were the smaller ones, the 20 litre ones, the clay pots, then Jesus created the equivalent of 640 modern bottles of wine. If they were the 30 litre ones, then 960 bottles of the finest wine. Do the maths, that's enough for 2,850 people. 2,800, and not the cheap stuff. This is Colin's Chateau Neuf de Pap. This is a good bottle of Chablis. You know, this is, this is the proper stuff. And he has created an obscene amount. 2,850 people's worth. So why? Why did Jesus create so much? What is Jesus saying? I mean, let's assume that the... the, that the Let's make the assumption that the host had had a, a reasonable amount of wine to begin with, and actually the party had just drunk it all. The folks had already had quite a bit to drink. Why isn't Jesus on the side going, I think you've really had too much? Why does Jesus create such an enormous amount? 
I want to challenge your imagination. Whenever I see pictures and paintings of this story, Jesus is always on the outside, looking slightly holy and watching everybody else partying. But you don't get that from reading the text. What if Jesus is right in the middle of the dancing? What if Jesus is in there swinging people around and celebrating the love of this couple, celebrating a marriage, the joining of two people, and he is thoroughly enjoying this community celebration? Why would Jesus then create this much wine? Well, I love Steve Chalk's answer to this. If you picture Jesus in the middle, celebrating with everybody. Steve Chalk says, Jesus is saying, the drinks are on me. Come on, people, let's celebrate. There's enough here for all of you. There's enough here for the drunk. There's enough here for the sober. There's enough here for the invited guests. There's enough here for the gate crashers. In fact, there's more than enough for several days to let this celebration continue. Now, I have to say, uh, scholars tell us that wine was weaker uh, back 2,000 years ago, probably 1-2%. Okay, so not the 12% French wine we have now, but still, by any measure, it was used for a celebration and Jesus created a lot of it. The drinks are on me, let's celebrate. Can you imagine... I mean, no, really, stop. Can you imagine? Is that a Jesus you can imagine? Or is everything within you going, no, no, sorry? Does that challenge your image of Jesus? Uh, Former pastor and author Rob Bell, in his book, What is the Bible? He suggests one of the questions we should ask when we read a passage in the Bible is, why did this story endure? Why did this story run down and be told and told? And then why did the author of the book choose to include it where they did? Why does John choose to put this story right at the beginning of his narrative about Jesus? What is he trying to say about who Jesus is? Well, it's possible that he's looking back to a passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 25, 6, talking about when the coming day of the Messiah is here. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the finest wine. A feast, the best meats and the finest of wines. So it's possible that John is echoing that and saying, this is, this is who the Messiah is, the, the, the finest food, the finest wine. It's an indication that Jesus is the Messiah. But also, perhaps, he's just saying this is who Jesus is. The generosity of the gesture The generosity of God and the generosity of God's coming kingdom. This is what it's going to be like. He's setting up the narrative Not just a little bit, people. This is no stingy amount. This is generous, gratuitous amounts overflowing and poured out and more than enough for everyone, whoever you are. Perhaps that's the image of Jesus John is trying to start his gospel setting us up with. And as we read through the gospel accounts, we see Jesus repeatedly uh, eating with people and dining with people. Um, In his book, A Meal with Jesus, Tim Chester says this, Jesus was seriously into eating and drinking. So much so that his enemies accused him of doing it to excess. Earlier in Luke's gospel, the Pharisees and their scribes said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Jesus spent time eating and drinking a lot of his time. He was a party animal. His mission strategy was a long meal stretching out into the evening. He did evangelism and discipleship round a table with some grilled fish, a loaf of bread and a pitcher of wine. 
In Luke's gospel in particular is full of stories of Jesus eating with people. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. Is that the picture you have of Jesus? At another point in Luke's gospel, the, they're comparing John's disciples with Jesus, or John with Jesus. And John was the ascetic, the wild man. Ate locusts and honey, wild hair, lived, out in the, lived an ascetic lifestyle out in the wilderness. And they say this, John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. And you say he has a demon, but the son of man came eating and drinking. And you say, this is the Pharisees, that he is a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus got a reputation for being with people at celebrations, for sharing food with them, and yes, for sharing wine with them, for being relational, for meeting round a table with people. And often those people were the wrong people. Consistently eating with the people that you weren't supposed to eat with, the ones he wasn't supposed to mix with. In fact, we read this story in Mark's Gospel. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having Levi a dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, that's the Pharisees, who saw this, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? A few years ago, interesting seeing Graham here this morning, I met Graham when I was working on this estate. Um, back at my, my first church out of college, it was it's a long time ago now, but I worked on an estate in South London. If you've been here a while, you'll know a little bit of my story. If you haven't, maybe I'll tell it at some stage. But fresh out of college, I went to work on the Ferrier Estate in Kidbrook. And I was there for about four and a half, five years in the end. And it was a, it was a challenging place. And a poor, overlooked London, South London sinker state. It's not there anymore. It's been regenerated, and if you drive through, you'll see lovely new shiny tower blocks, and all the former residents have moved to other parts of London because they can't afford the houses that were eventually built. But uh, I got to, got to know the community, got to know a group of people, and one guy I got to know in particular was a guy called Kev. Uh, Kev was an alcoholic. Um, his wife, Shirley, and their son, they lived together in one of the, one of the, one of the flats on the estate, and often when, when Kev got drunk and came home at night, Shirley wouldn't let him in, quite understandably. And he'd sleep, there were little these bin sheds at the end of the dryers, and he'd often just push the bin out of the way and curl up under there because there was some shelter. Eventually he had a little mattress in there that he would sleep on. And I got to know Kev over many years and, and worked with him, but his alcoholism was, was deep. And, and, and eventually, uh, sad to say, Kev passed away. And I did his funeral and we did the funeral at the church, and uh, to give you some indication that we were there waiting to start, and I had to wait for the family to come in, and actually I had to wait for them to finish a, a tin of Stella each to get the colour courage up to come into the funeral. So the funeral was 15 minutes late starting, because they had to finish their drinks outside before they came in. And I led the funeral, and there was a good amount of heckling, and, and as you do, I went back to their house afterwards for the, for the sort of funeral party, the, 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 the spread, the food, well... 
wasn't a lot of food, to be honest. But there was quite a lot to drink. And there was me. And I have to say, it's one of the most uncomfortable parties I've ever been to in my life. And we went back to the house afterwards. And I'm sitting around. I'm chatting to one or two of them. And, and it, was, it was lively. And it would look like it was only going in one direction. And here's me, middle-class Charlie, sitting in the middle of this scene, feeling quite out of place and trying to hold polite conversation with people. Um, and it didn't help that Kev's family were all Irish and they insisted on calling me father. <laughs> uh, anyway, I stayed through the evening. You know, we, we shared the few sandwiches that there were and had a couple of drinks with them and got chatting. And um, it was the only, It's the only party I've ever been to where I've seen someone openly injecting heroin in the corner of the room. But... Um, I eventually left around half nine, ten o'clock, and, and went back home. And um, the following morning, I went to see Shirley to ask how it had gone. And apparently, the party had finished at two o'clock when a television went through an upstairs window, and the police were called. <laughs> quite a party, quite a celebration. And but I knew, I knew that it was so important for me to be there. In fact, I knew that that was what I was there for more than anything else, was to be in the community with the people at that point and being alongside them and getting stuck in to the mess of life because if we're called to model Jesus and be who Jesus is then we're called to be in those places where Jesus would have been and Jesus was constantly hanging out with the wrong people and celebrating and partying and eating and drinking with them friends we have a party coming up ourselves a more sober affair I would imagine But we have a celebration coming up, and we have a good celebration coming up, to celebrate 250 years of this church. And we've got a couple of things, a couple of options. You know about them. The fun day on the Saturday, where we're going to say to the community, come, join in, participate. And then the celebration service and meal here on the Sunday. What image of Jesus are we going to present to the community that weekend? What image do we want to present of Jesus that weekend? What will our imagination allow us to present of Jesus that weekend? Do we have this image of Jesus that we see portrayed through the Gospels of him celebrating with people? Creating, creating 2,850s people worth of wine and saying with that, the drinks are on me. Come celebrate. The kingdom of God is good. It's a picture of love And generosity of God, overflowing and poured out for all. Poured out for even the wrong people. It's poured out for the right people. It's poured out for neighbours. It's poured out for strangers. It's poured out for our friends. Friends, the kingdom message is of good news, isn't it? Freedom from guilt and selfishness. A chance of a fresh start, an end to shame. The realisation that we're made in the image of God and that it's possible to live in relationship and step with him, in step with the creative force behind the universe. Of course, there are times as a church community for us to be serious, to think, to debate and deliberate. But also there is a time to celebrate, is there not? I'm struck that today's uh, lectionary reading is from Ecclesiastes. There's a time and a season for everything. There is a time to celebrate and people for us in this community for the next month, we have a time to celebrate and throw a party. To celebrate 250 years of God's goodness to us and faithfulness down the years. And I really hope it's our way of saying to the community around us, 
The drinks are on us. Come celebrate the goodness of God. Let's pray together. Father God, liberate our imaginations. Uh, Where they've been held in, hemmed in, by images and ideas we've picked up over the years that hold us back from this image of you as the great liberator, the great celebrator, the ultimate source of good news. And Lord, as we as a church celebrate 250 years of your faith, as we find ourselves now as the custodians of this church, we thank you for all the people that have had stewardship of this community over the last 250 years. And we pray now as we look forward to handing it on, we look forward to the future and what this church will be to this community and to the people around us in Dunton Green and in Riverhead and in Chipstead and locally. Lord, we want to say that to community. Come, celebrate with us. There is good news to be found here. The gospel, the kingdom is good news. There is love, freedom, forgiveness, hope to be found here. Come, celebrate the good news of God. Lord, may we be hopeful, positive, joyful, celebratory people and help us to shine that message clearly to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.